This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassioni. Today I've invited back Dr. Hummy Song, a professor in Wharton's Department of Operations, Information, and Decisions, and Dr. Aaron Smith McClellan, who is Director of Data Science and Healthcare Analytics for Independence Blue Cross. I spoke with them a few weeks ago about their study that found a dramatic decline in the number of mammograms performed during the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic. We talked about what it means not only in terms of health risks for women, but in the backlog it has created for healthcare providers. Now Dr. Song and Dr. Smith-McClellan have done another pandemic-related study together that finds essential workers and people who live with essential workers are at a substantially higher risk of contracting COVID-19 than non-essential workers. That may seem obvious, but their research puts some real numbers behind what we think we know about the transmission of this deadly virus. Dr. Song, thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Angie. And Dr. Smith-McClellan, also, thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this study. Uh, Dr. Song, why was it important to study this and what did you find? Sure. Well, we thought this would be important to study since many state and local governments were issuing and actually continue to issue these uh, business closure orders. And it was unclear to what extent it would actually have any effect at curbing infection risk. And after all, this ultimately impacts how we think about weighing the negative economic effects of closures, such as lost wages, unemployment, et cetera, against the desired health effects, specifically the reduced incidence and transmission of COVID-19. So our goal in this work was to examine the extent to which being designated as an essential worker by this policy versus as a non-essential worker impacts your risk of being positive for COVID-19. We actually took this one step further and also looked into how it impacts the risk of those who are living with essential versus non-essential workers. You might wonder, how do we determine who's essential and who's non-essential? So to do that, we simply use the definitions as stated in Governor Wolf's non-essential business closure order in Pennsylvania, since our data come from Pennsylvania. And so some examples of essential workers are Uh, those employed by hospitals, transportation systems, food manufacturing, et cetera, whereas non-essential workers um, include those in mining, construction, general merchandise stores, et cetera. So as you already highlighted earlier, um, our main finding is that workers who are deemed essential have a 55% higher likelihood of being positive for COVID-19 compared to those who are classified as non-essential. In other words, non-essential workers absolutely seem to experience a protective effect from this policy. And the other finding I wanted to highlight is that it's not only the essential or non-essential workers themselves that are experiencing this difference in infection risk, but also the other members in their household. So specifically, we're finding that compared to those who are living with a non-essential worker, dependents living with an essential worker have a 17% higher likelihood of being COVID positive, and roommates living with an essential worker uh, experience a 38% higher likelihood of being COVID positive. 
So that 55% is key. You're talking about the the person who's actually in the position in that job, uh, their risk is 55% higher than when they come home. Uh, they are, they are creating risk for their roommates, their family members, their children, their significant others, but that risk is a little bit less. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about the data. And this is where you come in, Dr. Smith McClellan. Your company provided this data set, correct? Yeah, thank you, Angie. That's right. Um, this is another great collaboration between the University of Pennsylvania and uh, Wharton in particular and Independence Blue Cross. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were thinking together about how we as a health insurer, along with our research partners, could add a unique perspective to understanding the impact that COVID is having uh, on our community. Um, and we got to thinking about Governor Wolf's non-essential business closure policy here in Pennsylvania. And we realized that we were in a unique position to evaluate the effectiveness of that policy on reducing infection rates. So um, it turns out that that policy evaluation is a unique analytic problem that requires us to link uh, COVID-19 status, uh, employer sector or industry that a person works in um, and, uh, and at the individual level. And uh, to evaluate the policy impact, we needed data from individuals who tested positive but also from those who uh, were not tested or tested negative and to be able to identify which industry they worked in. So we needed to have the numerator of the, the people who were positive and the denominator of all the other people either who didn't get tested or who tested negative. And so, um, uh, and then again, link that to the industry. So health systems and government agencies, so on, they, they see a small portion of the population who actually got tested, but they don't see who didn't get tested. So uh, those agencies also can't reliably link the tests that they do see to the industry that the person works in. So there's really no way for any other entity other than a health insurer to actually provide this level of analysis about this policy and take this granular look at it. So I think the, the, the data that we have is really informative here uh, as to the impact of policies. Um, as you know, most people get their health insurance through their job. Uh, and as a insurance company, we know who's associated with which company uh, as either policyholder or dependent. And we know the industry they work in because every company has a NAICS code associated with it. So that's the North American Industry Classification Code. And that's the code that uh, the Wolf administration used to identify industries as essential or non-essential. Um, but the, the data set is unique uh, in, it, in its breadth um, and it, you know, Independence provides medical insurance to more than 50% of commercially insured individuals in the greater Philadelphia area. And as I mentioned, many of those people get their insurance through their employer. Well, I know you're, you're talking specifically about that data coming out of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is the fifth or sixth largest metro area in the U.S., depending on which list you look at. Does that mean that your findings can be generalized to other places, other metro areas? What about rural areas? Or is that one of the limitations of the study? Yeah, we'd expect that the overall takeaway to be generalizable, even if the magnitude of the effect uh, might differ depending on a specific population. The estimates that Dr. Song spoke about um, may be, in fact, conservative ones. As I mentioned, our data represents those who receive coverage through their employer. So our sample doesn't include uninsured individuals, obviously, or those with other commercial insurance those covered uh, with uh, individual plans through the ACA or, or on Medicaid. So there's uh, a large segment of the population that we're not seeing. Um, 
but many of those uh, uh, those on, on on Medicaid for potentially and and uh, individual plans being uninsured might be actually more likely to be essential workers than non-essential workers. Um, so what we what we might I think what we're reporting is actually uh, potentially conservative estimates. And I don't know if you can address this issue that we're seeing that we're all learning about, about how COVID-19 has disproportionately affected minorities, neighborhoods of color. Um, how, do, how does that information factor into the findings in your study? Can one of you speak about that, please? Sure thing. So I think that's a really important aspect of um, what everyone should be paying attention to. Um, and this is part of what also motivated us to start thinking about intra-household transmission risk, because if you think about some of those populations and, you know, at least in the news, kind of what was being reported in terms of possible differences between some of these uh, populations that might be in higher income areas versus lower income areas is kind of that density of housing and the inability to um, perhaps quarantine if one member of your household comes home sick just because there's not enough room to to do that and you tend to have more people living in a smaller space. So, you know, that's part of what we hope we are able to speak to be, um, through that intra-household transmission aspect. We do control for um, all these kind of potential characteristics that may differ across these populations when it comes to um, kind of the not only the age and gender of the population, but um, kind of the, the zip code in which someone is living and how that might be related to some of these factors that you're mentioning. So we do our best based on the data we have to be able to kind of account for those factors. Um, but I, I will say and acknowledge that we haven't specifically drilled down into you know um, certain segments of the population beyond the initial categorization of essential versus non-essential workers. Right. We're still learning as we go. Absolutely. So what are some of the other ramifications of this study? I mean, we're in year two. We've learned about these new strains of the virus. We still have an unemployment problem, especially for certain sectors that are very hard hit. What can we take away from this study that perhaps will help us uh, reduce the rate of transmission, maybe get um, to the finish line faster in this pandemic? Dr. Song. Sure. Well, we hope that by quantifying these effects, we can help policymakers develop and think about, you know, what's the appropriate and necessary protection that workers need, both when it comes to workplace safety, uh, but also things like the right to refuse unsafe work. Um, so whatever can be done so that people don't have to be making a choice between their paycheck and their health. Smith McLellan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, I, I think that in a broad sense, what the non-essential business closure policy did was create a situation that limited interpersonal contact for essential, uh, for non-essential workers who are uh, staying at home, but also for essential workers who are perhaps commuting with fewer people, for example, and not necessarily exposed to all the people who are staying home. So kind of a secondary protective effect. Uh, what we showed is that the policy, that approach, um, was very effective, uh, very effective at reducing cases. Um, and then, let's think about that secondary protective effect for a second. Uh, we might initially think that if, if uh, there would have been no essential business closure, for example, then we would expect that um, if the non-essential workers had gone out and gone to work, that their infection rates would have been the same as we observed 
among the essential workers, right? That there would be no difference. And that's what the results of our study do speak to. That's what they show. However, mm -hmm. there is a real possibility that the rates for everyone, um, of course, there wouldn't have been this essential, non-essential distinction. Um, so the rates for everyone would be would have been considerably higher, even uh, even higher than what we observed in the essential worker population, just because of the increased contact and exposure across the board. But you know, having said that, I think that the I think that policymakers should take from this research is that with new strains of the virus being discovered and so on, if we reach uh, if we reach a point where we need to aggressively limit contact and transmission, uh, non-essential business closure policies can be effective. And now we can quantify just how effective they can be. You know, for for example, if a state had information that uh, X percent of the population worked in essential industries and Y percent worked in non-essential industries across the enti entire state, they could actually take the estimates, the results of our analyses, and come up with uh, conservative estimates of the number of cases that could be avoided and potentially the number of deaths that could be avoided uh, with business closure policy. Obviously, those benefits would have to be weighed against the cost, the jobs, the economy, and so on. But at least now that benefit can be quantified, whereas before it couldn't. Right. We're moving from anecdotal to analytical. I have one more follow-up question for you. When you're talking about that secondary protective effect where you're saying where non-essential workers create a little bit less exposure, that sort of makes sense to me because we're talking about if you're working from home, there's less contact. And that whole goal of less contact is uh, to flatten the curve, correct? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, when, when when everybody's just out there in society, there's just that much more interpersonal contact and connection with people, right? So if you take a large segment of the society uh, and and keep them home, obviously they're protected. But the people who are actually out there, um, you know, doing essential business and essential work, are now not exposed to a, a huge segment of the population. So it actually reduces their risk as well, even that they're at higher risk because they are out there, they're commuting, they're interacting with one another on the job sites, they're interacting with people, say, at grocery stores that, you know, you know even the non-essential workers have to go out and, and live their lives in some ways and perform essential activities. Uh, so they do have that increased exposure and that increased risk, which is what we document. But if everybody were out there, if we didn't have the non-essential uh, exposure policy, um, I think the rates for everyone would be a lot higher than what we what we observed in our study, even among the uh, essential workers. Thank you both for being here. That is some powerful information from our scientists and some encouraging news that these policies do help. Remember to stay safe and healthy. Wear your masks, wash your hands, social distance wherever and whenever you can. I want to thank my guests for joining me. If you like this podcast, you can find more just like it on our website, where you can also find all our articles on the latest research in business. I'm Angie Bessuni. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.